Amen. It's okay to clap. That's good. Thank you, Cindy. I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. The title of the message is, The Cross Before the Crown. When I was growing up, there was a phrase people would use. They would say, don't get the cart before the horse. What does that mean? It means there's a plan. There's a certain way of doing things. And if you do it the wrong way, you might be getting the cart before the horse. That doesn't work real well. Carts can be pulled by horses. I don't think horses are pulled by carts. We, uh, we have summer staff here, and there's a saying we've had at the chapel for years, long before I got here. There's a right way and a wrong way and the chapel way. <laughs> and we're going to teach you the chapel way. Some guys struggle with that a little bit because all they've ever heard is right way and wrong way. And they think, well, isn't the chapel way the right way? Well, yeah. It just sounds better to say it that way. We interview guys uh, in the off season to prepare them for uh, the, you know, for the summer. And uh, one of the guys we interviewed a few years ago said, "I have mad weed eating skills." Well, that got us real excited. This guy loves to weed eat, and so I thought this is going to be great. I think what he meant to say is, "My weed eating skills will make you mad," because by the end of the summer we realized. I don't know this guy knows which end of the weed eater to hold. But there's a plan. And the plan is the cross has to come before the crown. And what Jesus is going to address this morning in this passage is that's exactly the plan of God since the foundation of the world. And yet it troubled the disciples. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 Paul says, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, to the Gentiles, foolishness. In other words, if it was left up to the Jews or the Gentiles, they'd have done it a different way. In fact, what Jesus is encountering by the 16th chapter of Matthew is he's done a lot of miracles. He's fed 5,000 people. He's fed 4,000 people, not counting the women and children. And it says they were ready to take him by force and give him the crown. The only problem is the cross has to come before the crown. Listen to the way Jesus puts it. Let me read the passage, Matthew 16, beginning in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Peter took him aside and began rebuking him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, and you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. From that time on, this that phrase had been used before in Matthew's Gospel. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 17, I believe, he says, from that time on, and it was a turning point in the ministry of Jesus. Way back in Matthew 4, it was a turning point from the calling of the disciples to now the public ministry of Christ. And so from chapter 14 up into 16, 
It's been very public. There were times that Jesus would withdraw to spend time with God, but the crowd always found him. And he healed them. In fact, on one occasion we looked at just a few weeks ago, they were with him for three days while he healed every kind of disease and ailment. Then he had to feed them. But now there's a turning point again. In fact, they're leaving this district of Caesarea Philippi. If you look at the map, this is as far north as Jesus is really ever going to get. They're turning back to Jerusalem. And not many days from now, he's going to be on a walk to the cross. And so he, from that point, he begins to teach the disciples. This wasn't going to be the first time he tells them about his arrest and crucifixion. In fact, three more times in the Gospel of Matthew that he's going to foretell this. But he had already been talking about it. The disciples just never quite got it. And so when he tells the disciples these four things that he must do, I think they only heard the first three. Jesus said from that time that he must go to Jerusalem. The word he must means it's necessary. It's binding. In fact, i got to give Peter credit. Over in Acts, the first sermon ever preached, the long one by Peter, part of that sermon in the second chapter of Acts, verse 22 and 23, Peter said, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, and put him to death. Now, that's Peter after the cross. The problem is we're looking this morning at Peter before the cross. And he didn't get it. The pieces hadn't quite all come together for him. In fact, Peter really had his own plan. Peter wanted to do things his way. And so when he hears Jesus say, I must go to Jerusalem, it's a divine imperative. There's, there's no backup plan. We're not operating on plan B here. Jesus said, here's what's got to happen. I've been with you for close to three years. But I've got to go to Jerusalem. And I must suffer many things. I thought about that this week. What, what is it that he suffered? He's got to suffer many things at the hands of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. Basically, these are the people that made up the Sanhedrin. Most of the scribes were also Pharisees, and Pharisees and Sadducees made up the Sanhedrin. So Jesus is simply telling his disciples, listen, this is about to happen. shouldn't catch you off guard. It's predetermined by God. I already know it's going to happen. And I'm going to suffer many things. Jesus suffered the indignity of the arrest. He had done nothing wrong, and yet they come and arrest him like a common criminal. They can't even find anything to kill him over, so they keep passing him between both religious leaders and Roman authorities. So they thought, well, we'll just beat him. So he faced not only the indignity of the arrest, but the beating. They made fun of him. The Old Testament said they pulled his beard, they spit on him, they put a crown of thorns on him. They beat him nearly to death and then put a robe on his back. And then he went to the cross. Jesus said, I'm going to suffer many things. But I think the greatest suffering he did was when he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because for the first time in eternity, Jesus felt like God had looked away. God the Father. So Jesus says, I'm going to suffer many things. I don't think the disciples understood that. They just didn't like the word suffer. Suffer. 
And then he said, be killed. And the word he uses is not the word you would use for legal execution. It's literally the word, I'm going to be murdered in Jerusalem. And I think that's where the disciples, it just clicked for them. That was a deal breaker. They didn't hear him say the fourth thing. They just heard him say, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be destroyed. But I'm going to be raised up. I don't think they heard that. So here's where Peter pulls Jesus aside. The audacity of Peter. The one who Jesus has just commended for his faith and for his understanding when Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, just a few verses earlier. And Jesus blessed him. But now Peter pulls him aside and begins rebuking him. In fact, the tense of the words here is, it was a continuing action. What's he saying? Basically, no, 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 no. That is not the way this is going down. Now, think about that. This is Jesus, the Messiah, God with us, one sent from heaven, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. And all he's doing is telling the disciples, here's what's going to happen. Who, do, who does Peter think he is? I mean, he didn't say it, but basically he's saying it. That's not my plan, Jesus. That's just not the way I think this ought to go. That sounds like a two-year-old. Anybody got two-year-olds at home? You ever tried to tell them the plan? Amen, I hear that. <laughs> they call it the terrible twos for a reason. They, their plan is never going to coincide with your plan. And that's kind of what Peter does. He hears the first three, got to go to Jerusalem, going to suffer many things, I'm going to be killed, and that just kicked it into gear for Peter. No, it's not going to work that way. Now, I don't know what his plan was. I think Peter's plan would have been, well, let's just don't go to Jerusalem. If that's where all this bad stuff's going to happen, you know, it's like when you go to the doctor and say, doctor, my arm hurts in seven places. And he says, well, stay out of them places. That's kind of what Peter's saying is, hey, here's a plan, Jesus. Let's don't go to Jerusalem. Why does Jesus go to Jerusalem? Because that was the sovereign, predetermined plan of God. And it really was a good thing because he's going to be raised from the dead. Jesus had to die on the cross. That was the price of your salvation. I think there's times we take for granted that it's free. Yes, it's free, but it costs God everything. Jesus had to die on the cross because there is a penalty for sin, and it's death. You and I could do it, or Jesus could do it in our place, and that's exactly what he did. So when you think of the price of your salvation, Peter was trying to thwart the plan. Jesus is going to be raised on the third day. Peter takes him to the side, begins to rebuke him, and Jesus turns to Peter and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. Why? Because y'all, that had been what Jesus had heard back in the wilderness in, in Matthew chapter 4. Satan had a different plan. If Jesus was coming to save the world, Satan was basically saying, Hi, I'll give you the world. Just bow down and worship me. Was that God's plan? No. It wasn't God's plan for him to listen to Peter either. So Jesus says, Get thee behind me, Satan, because you're not interested in God's plan. You're not thinking about the interest of God. You're only thinking about your own selfish interest. And those selfish interests meant Avoid pain at all costs. 
In fact, Jesus said, you're a stumbling block to me. The word stumbling block literally means you're a trap. You're a baited trap. They would take a sapling and bend it over and put something that would attract an animal in it and put a rope there, and as soon as the animal got close, it would trip the trap and spring the trap, and the animal would be captured. That's what Jesus said. Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, because you're not thinking about man's plan and God's plan. You're thinking only about your own plans, and you are being used by Satan to set a trap for me. Satan had already tried that. In fact, when he leaves Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, it said he left to wait for a more opportune time. Well, here's one of those opportune times. Let me influence Peter to thwart the plan of God. In fact, the interesting thing is he says, Lord, let's don't do it that way. The word Lord literally means supreme in authority. So Peter is using a word that means, okay, you're the boss. You know what's best. Well, let's do it my way. Sounds kind of like us at times. Here's the problem, folks, in our day and age. It's easy to accept the prosperity and the health without the cross. You take away anything from the cross, it becomes an enemy of the cross. You add anything to the cross, it becomes an enemy of the cross. The cross had to come for the crown to be received. Let's look at the practice of your salvation. After rebuking Peter, who was trying to rebuke him, Jesus then says to his disciples, all right, here's the deal. If you really want to follow me, and folks, this isn't just something he's saying to the disciples. Make this personal this morning. This is the invitation from God to salvation. The practice of your salvation, the here's how you live it out. This is how you put feet to it. If anyone wishes, in other words, if you made up your mind, if you have determined to follow me. Now, the disciples up to this point have been doing exactly that. When Jesus called him, he said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. He's basically saying, okay, guys, the next stage of this journey is to head to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer many things, and the disciples were going to suffer as well. But he said, here's what's about to happen. If you're going to continue to follow me, if you're going to be one of mine, first thing you've got to do is deny yourself. I mean, he's not just speaking specifically to Peter. He's talking to us. Deny yourself. Literally disown yourself. Give up autonomy. Listen, human nature fights real hard to be in charge. We don't like somebody else being in charge of anything that has anything to do with us. In fact, we struggle with both self-reliance and self-indulgence. Self-reliance basically says, I got this. I don't need your help. I don't need anything else. I'm totally reliant on me. I got this. And you'll even hear people, you tell somebody the truth of the gospel, and I've had people tell me this, well, you know, I'm a good person. And what are they saying? I really don't need a Savior because I'm a good person. Really? What does the Bible say? The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know what people are saying when they say, well, you know, I'm a good person. What they're basically saying is, you know what? I think I do more good stuff than bad stuff. Maybe I was worse younger, but I think I've made up for it. Look at all the stuff I do. That's self-reliance. That's saying, I got this. I don't need a Savior. And the Bible says we're all sinners. And the penalty for sin, the payment for sin is death. 
That's self-reliance. Self-indulgence basically says, i got to be happy. God wants me to be happy, right? Every good gift comes down from the Father above. That's a verb. That's true. But what's Jesus saying? I want you to be happy, not in this life, not in your self-reliance, self-indulgence. I want you to experience something better than happiness. I want you to have joy. There's a big difference. Happiness is dependent on external stuff. Joy is dependent on the presence of God. So the self-indulgence spirit says, I've got to be happy. Here's what you hear in the church. Well, I've got to have my needs met. Why'd you quit going to that church? Well, they weren't meeting my needs. That is so selfish. I love the story about the guy that was marooned on the island, on the desert islands. He was, he was finally rescued. A ship finally came by, and he was showing them around this island he had lived on for years. And they said, what's that over there? He said, well, that's uh, my church. They said, really? They said, what's that over there? He said, well, that's the church I used to go to. That's that self-indulgent spirit that basically says, it's all about me, and if you don't do things my way, I'll go somewhere else. I've had people that want to start church. They want to start a church based on disgruntled church members. Guess what happens? If you build a church on disgruntled church members, what do you have? A disgruntled church. And if we live our lives basically saying, you've just got to meet my needs. I've got to be happy. You're probably never going to find a church that's going to make you happy. Until you get to the point where you surrender to Christ and say, where's the church I can serve Christ in? See the difference? It's not about you. And so when Jesus says, you've got to deny yourself to follow me, if you're still struggling with those two things, you're not going to follow Christ. We all want to do the third thing, and that's follow me. But understand something cross has to come before the crown you got to deny before you follow is there anything in your life you're still holding on to with a tight fist that god is saying why don't you let that go ephesians chapter 4 says the flesh is being corrupted that means the longer you live the more corrupt your flesh your flesh will lie to you to say you got to meet my needs you got to serve me Make me happy. It'll keep you from denying Christ. I mean, it'll keep you from denying yourself. It'll make you deny Christ. Then the second thing he says is take up your cross. We hear that, and we hear something entirely different than what a New Testament disciple would have heard. The men that he's speaking to, when he says, you've got to deny yourself and take up your cross, they had seen men take up their cross and walk through the streets of Jerusalem and elsewhere. They knew what that meant. That meant this guy is walking to his death. And so when Jesus says, you've got to take up your cross, he's, he's, he's sharing something with the disciples that was a, a picture to them. That they understood crucifixion was reserved for the worst enemies of Rome. And it was horrible. It was a public display for a reason. The Romans thought, if we kill you and let everybody see it, it'll be a deterrent from them doing They're going to ask, what did he do? Whatever it is he did, they're not going to want to do it. So when, Peter says, when Jesus says, you've got to deny yourself and take up your cross, 
They understood what he meant. You've got to be dead. There's no crossless obedience to Christ because he calls us to take up our cross. And then the good news, he says, then follow me. Follow me. That's what it means to be a believer. That's in a nutshell. Here's what I do as a Christian. I follow Christ. I read his word to find out what he wants to say to me. Some of it's marching orders. Some of it's instruction. Some of it's comfort. But I read his word to know what he wants me to do as I follow him. But I've got to first deny myself. In fact, I've got to tell you, reading God's word is a part of denying yourself. Because it takes time. You're basically saying, this is important. Me knowing God is important enough that I'll spend time in His Word. Going to church is part of denying yourself. Because you're saying, my walk with Christ is so important, I want to have an opportunity to worship Him and join together with other believers. To be taught and to spend time in corporate worship. Jesus says, come, follow me. See, I think we're hearing the follow me part. In fact, I think we've made invitations way too easy. When I was a kid, I grew, I grew up in Macon, Georgia, and the way you joined the church was you just got up, walked to the aisle, shook the pastor's hand. wasn't a lot of conversation. You sat down, somebody came up with a clipboard getting your information. Then you were stood up in front of the church, hey, we want to present a new member. And back then, they still voted. You know, if people had really known me, there might have been some dissensions. But they voted you in. If you've never been baptized in my church, you're going to be baptized. That was going to come a little later. But you're a member of the church. It's harder to join a lot of country clubs than it is most churches. And I'm not saying we've got to make it hard. I'm just saying maybe we need to be a little more thorough and explain to people, here's what it means to follow Christ. The reason you're joining this church is you're confessing, I'm a follower of Christ. Then the question is, have you denied yourself? I'd love to see a pastor ask that question maybe one Sunday morning. Okay, you want to join our church? Let me just ask you. Are you going to be a troublemaker? <laughs> well, troublemakers don't know they're troublemakers. They think they're God's gift to the church. <laughs> In fact, they think, you know what? You're not even going to need the Holy Spirit anymore once I get here. <laughs> but I'd love to, you know. All right, so once you start causing trouble, we're revoking your membership. You're out. We've made it a little too easy because we've just simply said follow. And folks, in order to follow, you've got to deny and take up your cross. That's the practice. In fact, that's where the rich young ruler struggled, right? Rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I got to do to be saved? And Jesus said, Well, obey the commandments. And this guy says, Well, I've done all that. I got that. And then Jesus said something that was no longer music to his ears. Jesus said, go sell everything you got and come follow me. Deny yourself. Go sell everything you got. This rich young ruler was rich, had a lot of stuff. And so to give that up meant deny yourself. What does the Bible say he did? It said he went away sad because he owned a lot of stuff. He wasn't willing to deny himself. Scholars tell us it's the only person ever left Jesus sad. Why? Because it was all about him. And he didn't want to deny himself. Sure didn't want to take up his cross. 
He wanted to inherit something, which meant somebody else died. He didn't want to be the one that gave up his rights and possessions. So ask yourself, is there anything in your life you're holding on to that is so dear to you that you would give up a relationship with Christ and spending eternity with God in heaven to hold on to? Y'all, this stuff is going to be destroyed. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. And then the paradox of your salvation. The paradox. It, it sounds like to say this means like it doesn't make sense. It's the flip side of this. But what Jesus says is you win by losing. You win by losing. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. In other words, if you come to Christ and it's, I just got to take care of me. I got to not only save my life, I got to save this life. I'm comfortable. I like this life. God, don't ask me to change. Then Jesus is saying, if that's you, you're going to lose that. Number one, you're not going to be one of my followers. And whatever it is you're holding on to, you may keep it for a while, but you ain't taking it with you. Whoever wishes to save his life is going to lose it. And this is following right on the heels of what Jesus said about denying yourself. If you've denied yourself, then you're not worried about holding on to stuff. But if you're struggling with denying, then Jesus is making it real plain. If all you're concerned about is keeping on to the stuff of your life, you're, you're going to lose all that. In fact, it's interesting the word he uses for the word life here. He uses it several times, and sometimes in my translation it's translated differently. Here it's translated life, but it's not the normal word for life. Normal two words in Greek for life is bios, which just basically means the breath or the biology of life, and zoe, which means abundant life, the kind of life God offers. This is the word suke. I'm telling you more than you wanted to know. Three Greek words this morning. Sorry. But it literally means your breath or your soul. And what Jesus is saying is if you're going to hold on to that with your own efforts, you're going to lose it. But if you're willing to give that up, then you're going to find it. If you give it up for my sake, you're going to find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? In other words, if we're, if we're keeping the books on this guy, at the end of the day or the end of his life, when you check his balance sheet, his ledger, and he owns the entire cosmos of the world, what, what profits are going to be? He's dead. All this stuff won't do him a bit of good. What good is it going to do if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Same word, forfeits his life or his soul. You want to cling to it, you're going to lose it. If you'll give it up for my sake, you'll find it. You're going to have it back. Because it doesn't make sense to try to cling to something. You're going to forfeit anyway. And then the last thing he says, the Son of Man is coming. Been 2,000 years since he said that to his disciples. Folks, it's closer today than it's ever been. Jesus is coming, and he will repay. He's going to repay the people that clung to their stuff and failed to follow him. They're going to spend eternity separated from God. But he's also going to repay the followers who maybe struggled in this life. In fact, he's coming in the glory of his Father. I want you to think about that for a minute. Jesus' coming to earth didn't seem very glorious, did it? His life didn't seem very glorious, and his death sure didn't seem glorious. 
But folks, it was part of the glory of the Father. And when Jesus comes back, he's not coming as a baby to be put in a feeding trough. He's not coming as a man to be nailed to a cross. He's coming as a conquering king to take over to the glory of the Father. That's how he's coming back. And so in light of that, give up the stuff that you would cling to that's of no good. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. In fact, Lord, thank you for the fact that by giving it all away is when we really gain. Father, there may be somebody to hear this morning that's really struggling with that. That whole deny yourself thing is so foreign and contrary to the world we live in. But God, I pray today that blinders would be taken off, they'd see the truth, what it really means to deny yourself and what we gain. May we all be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. In His name we pray.